All right, everybody. So uh, if you could find your seat. And uh, so Ken's been with us several times before, so most everybody knows who he is. And uh, I'm sure we have a little blurb in the uh, bulletin if you want to read a little bit more. But um, let's just bless him. Lord, we thank you. We receive him in the name of the Lord. It's like you taught us to. And uh, I just pray you just unlock whatever word he has for us and for the kingdom uh, this morning. And we just thank you for the privilege of having him here. And uh, I pray you would honor him, bless him, and bless his household and everything in his household uh, as well, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Next thing, open the iPad, all these things that go with modern preaching. Yep. Well, how's everyone doing this morning? That's good. I want to uh, I want to share with you this morning out of Psalm 73. So if you've got a Bible, hopefully it's a real one, not just a digital one. You can open it to Psalm 73. I think this is a, uh, I think this is a, a an apt psalm, even though we are in a season of outpouring. Um, I talked about this when I was here last time, but um, but Psalm 73 is one of these psalms that deals with the harder things of faith when we are in faith struggles, and the Bible tells us that. The victory that has overcome the world is our faith. I, that's not a verse I've heard preached on much lately, but it's in there, I assure you. 1 John 5, 4, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And it's our confidence in our Father, and faith and confidence are pretty good surrogates for one another in terms of uh, how we interchange the language. Our confidence in our Father, our faith in our Father, gives us surety and strength in the, in the midst of the struggles of life. And I might add to that, not just the struggles that come to us randomly, but even in the midst of the schemes of evil men and women. So the Christian faith, um, Peter tells us, is more precious than gold. That's 1 Peter 1.7, more precious than gold. And I think right now gold's worth more than $2,000 an ounce. So um, our faith should keep going up in value just as gold is going up in value. And yet, um, Peter reminds us, there are times when our faith gets tested by various kinds of trials. And that means there's different kinds of trials, and there's more than one. And so uh, it would be easy to think maybe that uh, because we're believers, we don't go through trials, or we shouldn't go through trials, or if we do one, then that's enough. But actually, there's something about Dare I even say this? Maybe I'll get thrown out of the building. But uh, it, it's in the repeated testing of our faith uh, that we find it becoming more and more precious. It's being refined. Um, it's being smelted. And in that, Peter says, our faith is proven genuine. So even though most of us want to move away from trials and difficulty, uh, maybe sometimes we should uh, embrace the pain, if you want to say it that way. And at the end of it all, Peter says, our faith uh, fills us with an inexpressible joy and with glory. 
And so that's the goal. That's where we're headed to. But there are times when our faith is being tested that it can seem perishable and fragile. Our faith uh, may become weak, and we ourselves may, well, I'm kind of using the language out of context, but uh, we find ourselves staggering through unbelief. That language is used, of course, of Abraham, and it says he did not stagger through unbelief, but maybe we're not as good as Abraham. And so we find ourselves struggling with that. In one of his parables on persistent prayer, the one that's in uh, Luke 18, Jesus taught that we should always pray and not lose heart. And one of the things that happens when our faith uh, struggles or falters or staggers through unbelief is we do lose heart. And sometimes we lose heart because of the things that are going on around us, and in that then our faith uh, pays a price. So there's, a, there's an interlinkage here. But anyway, at the end of that parable, Jesus asks a rhetorical question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, I think that has a lot of import for our times. Because even though we are in the midst of a season of outpouring and amazing things are happening all over the earth, uh, and literally everyone I talk to every single week, I hear more and more reports of what's going on. Um, in the midst of great outpouring, there is still great opposition to what we believe. And there are still, as Paul said, evil men and imposters who will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And in the midst of all of that kind of shall we say, pushback, there are times, uh, perhaps even in revival, and unexpectedly in revival, when our faith is tested to such a degree that our love can um, grow cold, and it can falter. And so we have to be on our guard. And with that in mind, let's read uh, Psalm 73 together. It's a bit longer of a passage than we might commonly read in church nowadays, but um, it's all there in the Word of God, and uh, it's only 28 verses. I think we can survive it, so let's go. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scuff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. 
like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, you rouse yourself. You despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Well, this psalm was written by a man named Asaph, and he was a, uh, shall we say, a commissioned singer and songwriter uh, 3,000 years ago, working in the tabernacle of the Lord. Not yet the temple, because uh, the temple was built by David's son Solomon. But Asaph was a close associate of David's, and he apparently struggled with this issue of um, evil in the world, and more particularly evil people. And the, the struggles that he has and the questions that he raises sound remarkably modern to our ears. And in fact, they should, because the Bible is a timeless book. It may have been written 3,000 years ago, but it's written to the state of all mankind, all humanity, and the things that all of us deal with from time to time, and the struggles that we face. And so uh, Asaf starts out, he's a man of faith, obviously, he's working in the tabernacle, he's a song leader, he's a... He's a worship leader, and he knew that God was good to his people, especially to those who had pure hearts. Now, of course, there's always this sort of tearing within the faith community. There's those who show up, and um, they go through the motions, and I guess on some level they're believers, but then there are those who are ardent. There are those who are deeply committed, those who are, we could call them devout or consecrated. Um, Asaf was one of this latter category, and he knew from the writings of Moses, specifically Psalm 90 and Psalm 91, which are really two parts of one psalm, he knew from these writings that Moses had left that those who dwell in God's shadow would be delivered from evil and from evil men and from evil women. That was his confidence. That's what he knew to be true because the scripture said it. And yet he looked around and saw something that looked very contrary to what the scripture promised. He also knew that because of what these uh, particular psalms said, that deliverance, and I don't mean by that in this case deliverance from evil spirits, although it might include that, but I specifically mean rescue, um, being pulled out of the miry clay. Rescue comes to those who are pure in heart. And in fact, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. And we might even extend that just a little bit and say they will see the hand of God extended to them. And so there is something of keeping your heart pure when it's difficult to keep your heart pure. That's part of what the testing and smelting of your faith does. That's part of what it means to say your faith is worth more than gold. Because when they're, when they're refining gold, they've got to get the dross out of it. They've got to get all the impurities out of it. And how does that happen except through the process of trials? 
And so how do we keep our heart pure? Well, um, we, we lean into God in the midst of difficulty. And Asaf is going to have a few more things to say about that, but let's not spoil it by, uh, by giving you the answer too soon. But there are levels of rest and there are levels of communion with the Lord, but when we talk about dwelling with God, we're talking about settling down and living with him continuously. We're talking about something where we don't, we don't move just because the times get tough. This is our place. This is our portion. This is where we dwell. And so to live continuously in the presence of the Lord requires a particular kind of heart attitude that's based in trust, and it's also based on knowing the character of God himself. And so one of the things that happens to us through trials, if they have their proper effect, is that we learn the character of God at a deeper level. And we aren't shaken off of our moorings in the midst of all of that difficulty. And Asaf says, uh, through his meditation here, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, and my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. And so Asaf makes a confession that many of us would not make. I think this is, um, shall we say, brutally honest or uncharacteristically honest. And what Asaf says is that the root of my own personal faith crisis was envy. I looked at what others had, and I wanted it. If you look up the word envy in, uh, I use Merriam-Webster's dictionary, you might use a different one, but uh, Merriam-Webster defines envy as the painful or resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another joined with a desire to possess that same advantage. And in that, <laughs> I see the face of Gollum. I want the precious. <laughs> I want the power. I want the prosperity. I want the comfort. I want the vacations. I want the cars. I want the... Just fill in the list with whatever you might want to fill in. And so Asaf nearly lost his faith. He nearly fell away. As a worship leader, as a man who was a close consort of King David, because he saw the prosperity, he saw the advancement, he saw those around him who did not acknowledge or serve the Lord. The Bible calls people like this the wicked. This is an older term, it's not one we tend to use much in modern speech. It not only seems dated to, uh, to a society and to a generation where we're not supposed to really assess or weigh anything, we're not supposed to judge. Um, we don't really use language like this, but the Bible does. And it refers to people who have an ingrained, habitual, we might even say a studied disregard for God and his ways. And not only that, it may well be in their blood. They might have come to it honestly because they come from a family or a group of people who uh, treat the Lord and his things in this way. It refers to those who wantonly violate the ways of God. Now, even as I'm looking out over this crowd, I see the faces of many of you whom I've known through the years, and I know enough of you well enough to know some of your stories, and I am aware that some of you have had this kind of thing 
go on in your own journey. And so maybe I didn't, I didn't come with any of that in mind. I, I wrote this message because I felt like the Lord wanted me to bring it to this church. Uh, but as I'm looking out over the crowd and I see some of your faces, I'm thinking of the stories I know from your own lives, and I think, yeah, well, uh, some of you have had these same struggles that Asaf has been through. And some of you have found yourselves at the place maybe where you, you nearly lost your faith and fell away because you saw people, we might say colloquially, getting away with murder. And if, even if you don't have a personal story of it, all you need to do is turn on, I don't know, your computer or the television, wherever you collect your news these days, and look at what's going on in the wider world. And uh, that might be enough to do it. And so although Asaf was a worship leader, although he loved the Lord, uh, nevertheless, he found himself envying. He found himself wanting what they had. And we, too, can fall into that. So what is it that the wicked have? Well, Asaf gives us kind of a listing of what they have and how they behave. And so that's all found in verses 4 to 9. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies don't hurt them. Or their conscience doesn't hurt them. Maybe they have a seared conscience, and that allows them to do things that we ourselves might consider outrageous, unfathomable, and completely out of bounds. They, he goes on and he says um, that they are not troubled as others are, and they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And just before that, I left the line out. Their bodies are fat and sleek. I guess they lived in an age where being fat was a good thing. In our age, not so much. But anyway, they had sound physical health, maybe because they can afford the best medical treatment, maybe because they can uh, go to the best spas and they can hire the best trainers to help them continue looking their best in order that they may be among the cognoscenti and among the connected. And, because after all, people at that level, rarely do you find ugly people. Usually they're very good looking and they, that's part of, their, uh, part of their presentation set. And then Asaf goes on and he says, therefore pride is their necklace and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scuff and speak with malice. They loftily threaten oppression. So these people that Asaf is looking at, we might term them uh, perhaps the privileged. And, and I don't mean by that white privilege. I mean any privilege. And um, they enjoy seemingly a better lot than many others. You might have your own version of this simply because although you live in Laguna Niguel, which ain't exactly the ghetto, um, you look up the coast and you see the people living in Newport Beach. So, I mean, there, there's always this kind of aspect to the human condition of looking at what someone else has, somebody who's a little further up the ladder than you are. And as Asaf is thinking about that, he says, they get away with prideful attitudes, prideful words, and prideful actions. They commit or they back those who commit violence for their own benefit. Well, you think about that and you think about some of the things that we've seen in the last few years. You think about some of the conversation in our country and you realize, wow, this, is a, this, this psalm is speaking right into modernity. 
And not only do they do all of that, uh, they speak with malice. Now, malice is the intent to cause pain or injury or distress in another person. They literally speak their words looking to tear other people apart. Well, just watch our modern political scene if you need any further examples. But you may know people in your office or wherever you work who behave in this manner. Maybe your next-door neighbor or maybe someone in your own family does this. And so you have your own version of this. And in addition to all of the above, they speak against God himself. And the words that they utter, they spread widely through the earth. Why is that? Well, because especially today we have mass media, and whether it's broadcast television or the internet or social media or whatever it may be, they speak against God himself, and these words, they, they go, as he says, haughtily through the earth. It's like the words themselves have boots on, and they, they seem to run free course. Paul said to the Thessalonians, pray that our message may run free course, that it may not be hindered. And yet, when we're thinking of the wicked, when we're thinking of the arrogant, when we're thinking of a, of a world gone mad, we might well say that their words run free course. And underneath all of these musings, of course, is the thought, it isn't fair. And God, where are you? That's what Asaph is struggling with in this faith crisis that he's having. I kind of wonder, just as I ponder this, what was it like for him to get up and try to lead worship in the congregation when all of this was in his mind and in his heart? I mean, he had to go through the motions, as we say, put on your game face, show up for work, put on the suit, do the job. But um, I think there's a, big, <laughs> there's a big dichotomy here between a, a life of praise and worship and fulfillment um, and what is going on inside of him. And he goes on and he says, I'm now down in uh, verses 13 through 15. Uh, he talks about how, uh, as he looks at these wicked people who are at ease and their wealth just continues increasing, he says they increase in riches. I mean, it's very obvious what he's referring to. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. I wasted my life. I did all of this for God and it was to no avail because I'm looking around and I'm seeing all of this massive increase in money and health and all the good things of life that they have. I washed my hands in innocence. I could have played that game, but I chose to sit it out, and now I've been left behind. That's more or less what Asaf is saying. And all day long I've been stricken. <clears throat> and so as he looks around him, Asaf began believing that he had actually um, been a fool. And if you were alive today, I would say to him what I want to say here. You're not a fool to live righteously for the Lord. You may not see your reward in this lifetime, but on the other hand, you might. Sometimes God vindicates the righteous in this lifetime. And we should never, ever let the things that we see that contradict our faith pull us down into the miry clay like Asaph had gotten to. And again, it was the doorway to it was envy. That was what opened him up to this very failing. John Wimber used to say when he was alive, never doubt in the darkness what you believed in the light. And what tends to happen when people are in a faith crisis and they're descending into darkness is the, far, the further down they go, the faster they accelerate. 
And the faster they accelerate, the more the darkness overtakes them. And so Asaf was aware of his own daily struggles and hardships. He doesn't enumerate what they were, but he knew what it was to attempt living faithfully for the Lord in the midst of these many challenges, and all of it seemed like it was useless, like it was futile. And as he considered speaking it aloud, though, we might say today, posting it on social media for all to see, he says something very interesting. He said, if I had said, I will speak thus. In other words, if I give voice to the very things that are in my heart, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And he's saying very clearly, I would have betrayed the next generation of believers. Now, it might have been his own children he was speaking of. He could have been thinking of children in the congregation of Israel, no longer in the wilderness, but in Jerusalem who gather at the tabernacle um, to worship. They looked up to him. He was some kind of a voice. He was a worship leader. And if he had expressed the very things that he was struggling with internally, he's saying, I would have, I would have destroyed the faith of these little ones. Jesus had something to say about that too, didn't he? That it would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck than to say something or do something that would stumble the little ones. And when we think about the struggles of life, I mean, they could be so varied that we really couldn't make a complete listing of them, but maybe in our own personal lives we could think of sick children or tattered or frayed marriages, financial reversals. I was talking to a friend last week who... Uh, is currently, but not much longer, employed by First Republic Bank up in uh, San Francisco. This individual had managed to get some of the stock options exercised uh, before FRB went into receivership. And this is all in connection with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, which was in the news about a month ago. And this person lost everything they owned. They, had, they took a few thousand dollars out of the stock options, but essentially everything they had, all the wealth they thought they had made vanished in a matter of a few days. And in the midst of it all, they're, they're remodeling their home. It's torn up. They have new appliances sitting that they can't install. None of the work is done. They had to let the contractors go, and they don't even know how they're going to complete their house. Now, hopefully you don't have that scenario. But the point is, it doesn't need to be your marriage. It doesn't need to be uh, your health. It doesn't need to be your children. It's, it's all of this and more. It's, it's the brokenness of the world. It's, it's the pain that we feel. And yet, Asaf says, sometimes in the midst of all of that, it's better to hold your peace. Sometimes it's better to bite your tongue. Sometimes it's better to wrestle internally, to wrestle with God, maybe like Jacob did at Bethel, Sometimes it's better to wait upon the Lord. That's what David said in Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and he heard his cry. And so David, his Asaf's boss, he's his, his employer, his, he's also his king. Um, David had similar sentiments to Asaf. So we realize what Asaf is dealing with isn't just something that comes to someone, shall we say, who's a worker in the temple of the Lord, it comes to the king himself. Even the rich have these struggles. There's no getting away from this problem. And maybe even this is why David hired Asaph, because their hearts beat in unison in the face of these kinds of challenges. Well, if we ended the sermon here, we'd all go home depressed, right? <laughs> 
so we won't end it here. But I am keeping an eye on the clock. So Asaf goes on and he says, when I thought how to understand this, how to come to terms with all of this upheaval, all of this distress and difficulty, when I sought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It was, it was more than I could fathom. My, my brain got stuck or locked up, or as we say, my, my head exploded, right? We have our own ways of expressing this. But he didn't know how to respond to the faith crisis he was in because he was stuck. And he didn't know how to comprehend it. And it seemed just too much. And so he became weary with it. And he says, because I was in that place and I was stuck, I, I remained so until I went to the sanctuary of God. Now, praise the Lord, he had a job that required him to go to the sanctuary of the Lord. We may not. In our time, sometimes people, they hit this, this kind of an air pocket. They hit this kind of a faith crisis, and they just vanish from the church. They, they ghost the Lord, <laughs> right? We use that term, they ghost. Well, they ghost the Lord. And sometimes they're gone for not just weeks, but months or years or even decades, and so returning to the place of worship was where Asaf found consolation. It's where he found the solution to this faith crisis that he was in. And he goes on and he says that once he stopped trying to solve it all with his mind, and he returned to the place of worship, giving himself wholeheartedly to the Lord, giving most particularly his, his uh, stricken and tattered emotions to God, then revelation in the form of discernment came to him. And he could begin taking the long view. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then, and only then, did I discern their end. And when I saw the end of it all, when I took the long view, now I was no longer distressed at the prosperity of the wicked, at their health clubs and spas, at their homes in Cabo and their sailboats. I was no longer bothered by the fact that they had a 25,000 square foot house in Coto de Casa and I'm living in a 2,000 square foot house in Laguna Niguel. All of that vanished because I turned my gaze to him and I began focusing on God. That became my rescue. Job was another man who had a problem like this. He, uh, may, you may remember, had a few problems in life. He lost everything, too. He lost his kids in one day. He lost his crops. He lost all of his animals, which was his wealth. And uh, his marriage fell apart. His wife said to him, why do you hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. His marriage fell apart in the midst of his own faith crisis in the midst of the trials and difficulties of life. And it says, Job 1.20, when all these things happened, Job fell on his face and he worshipped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so as a soft begins turning maybe out of the, you know, he's kind of hit the bottom of the trough and he's starting to turn upward as that's going on. 
he has this understanding, God surely does deal with the wicked. And so he writes, truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. They will come down. I, I, you know, when I, when I read that verse as I was thinking about this sermon, I couldn't help but think of a man named Jeffrey Epstein, who was in the news not all that long ago, and he would have definitely fit that, that model, that paradigm, that profile of a man who seemingly had it all. He was among the most connected people in Hollywood. He had the great office and the cars and the women and the vacations and all the things that seemed to be the trappings of, uh, of success, as we define it. And um, his world came unraveled, and of course... Jeffrey Epstein committed suicide. So even as they seem to thrive and prosper, God sets the slippery, excuse me, sets the wicked into slippery places where they will fall into ruin. The Lord has a way when, it, when it's his time to pull the rug out from underneath those who are behaving in this manner. And so, you know, I want to back up here to verse 10 for just a second. We're a little further on than that. But note that Asaph says, therefore his people, God's own people, turn back to the, to the wicked. They actually turn their faces to the wicked, and they find no fault in them. They bring no blame. They bring no charge against them. They're like, yeah, well, this is just the way it is. And they say, how can God know? Well, is there knowledge in the Most High? Did it all get by him, or did he pay attention? And now he's answering his own question. Yeah, he's going to pull the rug out from underneath them at the right time, but there is his time and then there's our time and normally our time is much sooner than his time why is it that God takes so long to pull the rug out from underneath the feet of the wicked it's because God is just you may say well then he should do it sooner no he shouldn't and here's why because since God is just Nobody will be able to say to him on judgment day, you didn't give me every single opportunity to repent. And so God is just, and he's waiting to give them that chance. Now, generally, they're not going to take it, but some will. And so God is not willing that any should perish. And, and he, is, he is wanting all to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so he will withhold the hand of judgment longer than we deem necessary or prudent for the simple reason that even though they are the wicked, he still loves them. And he still wants to give them every single opportunity. But when he pulls the rug out from underneath them, it's because in his omniscience, he knows that there is nothing more that could be done to try to turn their hearts. They've used up every last chit and opportunity and so the only thing left is to set the wheels of what we call justice in motion. And so he says, how they are destroyed in a moment, they are swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. And so one moment they are there, the next moment they're gone, and they're swept away by the things that maybe were the very things that they were chasing after and that consumed their lives or defined their lives. And so Asaph is basically saying, Lord, when you do ultimately rouse yourself to deal with them, they will be like a dream when I awake. 
Well, we all know what that's like. You have a dream in your mind. You wake up and you think, I, I'll never forget this dream. And five seconds later, it's gone. It's, it's, it's a phantom. And so he's saying, that's the, way, that's the way the wicked will be dealt with by the Lord. They vanish and they're gone forever. And then um, Asaf is nearly done here with his meditation. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, and I was like a beast before you. Let's unpack that into our modern language. This is the effect of bitterness upon the soul. Now, it started with envy, but it's moved onward to bitterness. And when people are in this kind of a faith crisis, they nearly always become embittered with God. Nearly always they become embittered with God. And if you've ever met anybody who says, I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist. I used to believe in God. I don't believe that stuff anymore. Anytime you meet somebody like that, ask them one question. When did God disappoint you? Now, the real answer is God never disappoints anybody, but they perceive that he has. And so Asaf is thinking about that bitterness of soul, and he says, when I was filled with bitterness about my own plight and about the success, about the wealth, about all of the good living of the wicked, and my heart was in anguish, I became like a brute. Now, brute is not a word we use very much, but if you take the word brutish, which is the adjectival form, we kind of know what this is. This is somebody who's uncouth, somebody who's foul, somebody who's not pleasant to be around. They can't even speak civilly of anybody or anything. All they do is live unto themselves. They destroy any room, any conversation they come into. He's saying, I lost my ability to reason. Said another way, I went crazy. That's what happened. And so in that, I became unseemly like an animal toward you. And although the, the passage we're looking at doesn't say it, you could easily insert it and you wouldn't be out of character for the passage. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me, Lord, for I have sinned. Forgive me because with my lips I have charged you with wrongdoing, unlike Job. And so in the midst of worship, in the midst of this revelation that he has received, Asaf found his way to repentance, and in so doing, he found his way home. God was once again holding his right hand. He even says it. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. I'm walking hand in hand with God again. And Asaf, going back to the reference I made without reading it, to Psalm 90 and Psalm 91, Asaph was once again dwelling in the tent of the Most High. He was once again abiding, dwelling in the shadow of the Almighty. He'd made it out of the pit. He'd left his deconstructed faith in the dust and had returned to a true and vital walk with the Lord. He says this, Whom I high in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. But he wasn't there at the start of this psalm. This is the movement that he made as he began moving back toward God. I have nowhere to go but you notwithstanding my embittered heart, notwithstanding my angry thoughts, notwithstanding the things that I see the wicked getting away with, I am always with you. You take my hand and you uphold me. 
Now, these words remind me anyway, maybe you too, of another time during the days of Jesus when many of Jesus' own disciples forsook him. They had their own faith crisis and they left. You can find the passage. It's an interesting address, John 6.66. Anyway, they left him and they no longer walked with him is what the scripture says. They bailed out and forsook him. And then he turned to the twelve and he said to them, Will you also depart? And Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That is the return to faith that Asaph went through. That's the one that the twelve were standing in while all the rest of the disciples fell away. And so there's a remarkable similarity, I would say, to the trajectory of faith between both the Old and the New Testaments which is to say that the way we experience faith crisis and recovery is the same whether we're thinking about Old Testament or New. And so now with a new perspective, remember the word metanoia means to change the way you think or to change your mindset. What's he got? He's got a new perspective. Now with metanoia, now with repentance, now with a changed mind, now with a, that new perspective. And it's founded on worship, it's founded on repentance, it's founded on apologizing for the way he has... Uh, what the way he has felt or what he's carried in his heart towards God, Asaph could confidently expect God's wisdom and guidance with his words spoken daily in his ear. And, and when his earthly course was finished, and we could say the same for ourselves, that the Lord would take him to heaven. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. There it is. Those who are unfaithful, he will put an end to them. Maybe not as soon as you think he should, but he will do it. But for me, it is good to be near the Lord. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. And so it's a great and precious promise of the Christian life. It's part of what makes our faith more precious than gold, that we don't have to live only for success or winning in this life. We have a longer viewpoint, and we already know that in that future life we will be rewarded even if we don't see it in the now. And sometimes, sometimes I fear we forget that this life is but a vapor. But the reality that there is eternity, eternity with the Lord, uh, that should frame all of our thinking, and it should actually help us to thrive and survive in very difficult times. And Asaf's words, I have nobody who draws me in heaven other than you, and there's nothing on the earth that interests me or draws me other than you. You have become my singular focus, and with that I don't need to worry about the, what the wicked are doing. And even if my mortal body and my strength should fail me, you are the one who captures my heart and its affections, and you are my allotted portion both in this life and in eternity. His final understanding is in verses 27 and 28. Here is what I have come to realize. Those who do not walk with you will perish. They may perish in the now, but they will surely perish in the then, in the eternity. We don't like to think about the doctrine of hell. We don't like to think about just rewards. But in fact, it closes the circle on the agony we have in our own minds 
when we think about the evil that's in the world, when we think about the Adolf Hitlers, when we think about the Kanyas and his child army in Kenya, when we think about the Joseph Stalins, when we think about some of the doings that are going on maybe in Washington, D.C. right now, God is going to take care of it. And as for me, knowing that you will render justice, I will satisfy myself with dwelling with you. You are and you will remain my hiding place, and I will continue to declare and proclaim your wonderful works. I will go on talking about God. Instead of all that bile, all that venom that was in my heart that I had to kind of keep my mouth shut, lest I poison the hearts of those around me, now I can open my mouth and I can speak forth joy and praise. Now you may be saying, Ken, why are you telling us all this? <laughs> well, here's why. Because when I was here a couple of months ago, I talked uh, about how we'd crossed a line of demarcation back in February. And I spoke of a great worldwide revival that had begun across the earth. It's happening. It's still going on. But as I said at the start of this sermon, there will be very great challenges because those who are arrayed against the Lord, who fall into this category of the wicked, many of whom have the kind of lifestyles that we've described here, those people are not going to go away. They are not just going to roll over and play dead. Some of them will repent and believe and praise God for that, but there will be some who will simply harden their hearts as Pharaoh did in the face of God's miraculous power, and they will become our most dedicated opponents. And there is a great persecution that is rising in the earth against the people of faith. It's happening against the Jews. Right now we're starting a 21-day fast, many of us, maybe, I don't know if you guys are doing it here or not, but anyway, many across the world are involved in this fast uh, on behalf of the Jews. But among the Christians, Christians are being persecuted at a level not seen since ancient Rome. More people are being martyred. And if you haven't noticed, the political winds in this country are shifting. And unless the revival shifts those political winds, we might find ourselves in a rather, well, unenviable position uh, here in the United States in the months and years ahead for no reason other than we believe in the Lord. And many of us will find ourselves challenged in our faith. So a while back, I was leading a pastor's conference um, in another country, and somebody said to me, what do you think is one of the most important things that we should be doing for our people right now? And I said, prepare them for martyrdom. Well, I don't know if we're going to have martyrs in this country, but we could. But we surely will have more persecution, more mocking, more ridicule, more slander, more haughty words strutting through the earth coming against us. We surely will see evil men and impostors going from bad to worse. We will see people steal our money. We will see people engage in reprehensible business dealings and seemingly walk away with it. We will see politicians continue to work against the principles of righteousness that founded this country. We will see all of that, and you, like Asaf, and I, like Asaf, could find all of ourselves in a faith crisis. And so, while I may not be preparing you for martyrdom, I am preparing you for, with an answer, something that you can use, something actionable, uh, should you find yourself in the midst of a situation like Asaf found himself in. 
And with that, if you use this tool, you will prevail because faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Now, a lot of times when I'm here, you know, we have an altar call and the Holy Spirit really blows people up and it's impartation and all that. But I just wonder, are there some of you here who might need to come forward this morning and level set your relationship with God once again? You know, bow in worship, kneel in worship. If your knees aren't so good, maybe sit in worship. But um, find your way to the front and say to the Lord, I'm sorry, I was brutish and ignorant before you like an animal. I said things that were unseemly. I, I forgot that you ultimately will take care of all of this. And if you need to do that, if you need to have that kind of a reconciliation or restoration in your walk with God even now, uh, this would be a good time to do it because I assure you the ride that we're on, it's going to get rougher uh, before it gets smoother. In the end, it's all going to be great. We know how, how things end. We've read the end of the book. Uh, but, but the ride will get rougher between here and that outcome. And so if you need to come up and get things right with the Lord, you, this would be the time to do that. And uh, we have the band. It's an amazing worship band. Uh, you could be wrapped in the presence of worship even as you uh, come back. And for the rest of you, you can go pick up your children. You can go to lunch. And remember to keep your eyes on the prize. Amen. Amen. I got a special request. Um, Pastor just prayed. I haven't seen my wife in five years. My children, I think, are three and five. And I'm like, how old is that? So uh, why don't we all stand, please?